Wow, 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 wow. Okay, man. Hey, how you doing there, Big Ray? I'm doing great, yeah. I got a new microphone out in the car. You sound like, uh, you sound like Lauren Green. <laughs> I hope the bump up in quality is going to come across. Yeah, it's an investment. We're investing in the listening experience of our audience. Absolutely, And yeah. uh, you sound like James Earl Jones, man. <laughs> Ray here is, uh, he's proof two packs a day gets you the sultry tones <laughs> all my healthy living it's not really paying off right now i'm telling you that much no no so uh yeah i'm super fired up today man this is gonna be really really fun we're talking about 10 to midnight here and are you as excited as i am big ray yeah so i'm excited because we don't really have we haven't talked about this one at all no i don't know really know what you think of it and maybe you don't know what i think of it so it's gonna yeah it's gonna make for a fun one yeah, I was asked to go on a friend's podcast recently to talk about this film, and that got me thinking about us doing it too. So it's a Gag Me With a Chainsaw podcast. You go check that out if you want to hear more about 10 to Midnight after you've listened to this one, of course. So we're going to get right into it here. Uh, 10 to Midnight was released on March 11th, 1983. This is a Canon Films Group film directed by Jay Lee Thompson. And I think this is the second of, uh, of Bronson's collaborations with the people who run Canon. Uh, his first being Death Wish 2, which was extremely successful, if not controversial. Jay Lee Thompson teamed up with Bronson for nine collaborations across a 13-year period, and 10 to Midnight represented their fourth time teaming up. So they're pretty well acquainted by this point, and they kept working together right until the end of the 80s. So it cost about $4.5 million to make, and apparently it grossed about $7 million in North America. Uh, Bronson, of course, uh, he was 62 years old when this movie was made. He looks not a hair over 50. And he did this one right after Death Wish 2 and right before The Evil That Men Do, which we've talked about on a previous episode. It's considered kind of a cross-genre movie that incorporates elements of both urban cop action thriller and the serial killer slasher horror movie genre. So it's kind of a hybrid film. And, you know, I don't think it gets its just desserts, man. It doesn't get its due. You read a lot of reviews, and we'll get into some of those reviews later. But, yeah, people, people have mixed feelings about this film. I loved it. Yeah. But uh, we can get into more of that shortly, too. Uh, Big Ray uh, has, though, uh, <laughs> going to take us to the next step here, which is the film in 60 seconds. Yeah. Uh, and in case you haven't watched the movie, you know, this is basically the, the most important details, the biggest plot twists and the main characters. So you ready to go, Big Ray? Yeah, I think so. This is a pretty tight movie. This is like we'll get into the story, but it doesn't wind in all sorts of crazy ways like like some do. This is pretty straightforward. I think I'm good. You got a you got like a one sentence. Uh, <laughs> it's like a seven second review. You might be able to, but no, it's a little bit longer than that. But I, I think I can dial it in in a minute for sure. Really? I saw you sipping a Modelo there. So maybe we'll, we'll yeah. be the judge of that. I don't know if that's going to speed things up or slow them down. Timer is going to get started here, buddy. You better be ready. Here goes. One two and start detective leo kessler and his young partner mccann are on the trail of a sicko slasher murdering young women and leaving no trace but despite killing in the nude to avoid evidence warren stacy gives himself away pretty early by being literally the creepiest guy anyone's ever seen the case gets closer to kessler when one of the victims turns out to be a family friend after Kessler gets a hold of the dead girl's diary and Stacy's masturbatory paraphernalia, he is sure the young creep is the murderer. Kessler plants evidence is the only way to get him off the streets, but when McCann won't go along with it, Kessler is off the force and Stacy is free to go after Kessler's daughter Lori, resulting in a murderous rampage that leaves all of Lori's friends dead. Bronson in hot pursuit of the naked killer through the rain-slicked streets. 
Stacy promises to get off with an insanity plea, but Bronson isn't having any of it, ending his murderous reign with a bullet right to the head out there on the street in front of everybody. Cops arrive, roll credits. Woo, Ray, man, that's like, that's like 50 seconds. I'm so impressed, uh, and you hit all the main points. Thanks, man. Um, Thanks. You know, you kind of dug yourself into a hole when you did the, the death hunt uh, synopsis. You know, I think you think you took about 120 seconds to do a 60-second retelling. <laughs> <laughs> I keep giving you a hard time about that. But uh, this is more than makes up for it. You're more than broken even on on this one. So excellent job. And just like this movie just gets down to business. Like it doesn't waste any time. Uh, it establishes who the killer is immediately. And then you just sort of watch it unfold. So yeah, I, yeah, I, re- I gotta say, I really enjoyed watching this film and I, and I've watched it now again, as we do, I've probably watched it about five times in the last, <laughs> in the last month. Yeah. <laughs> and I enjoyed it just as much the last, the last viewing. Yeah. I've seen this. Well, I watched it twice to get ready to talk uh to you about it and before that i hadn't seen it in some time speaking of a lot of the reviews being negative and we'll get into that like before you came to it again what did you remember of it like what were you thinking you were getting into because i didn't get what i remembered no you know and this is similar for me with the evil that men do having not seen either of those films for a good 25 years like I remember thinking at the time when I was in high school and I saw uh, 10 to midnight that it was kind of, it was over the top or that it was kind of stupid. And, <laughs> and now I'm thinking back, I'm like, what was I thinking? Where was like, your that head was at? Completely mis- I know I was completely mistaken. You know, like it was just, I didn't, I don't think I, ex- I don't think I experienced movies in the same way back then as I do now. Obviously I didn't pick up on a lot of the subtleties and, and this movie had a lot of layers, man. There was a lot going on in this film. Yeah. The character development's amazing. There's basically four really strong characters and you kind of start really liking all of them. Even, even, uh, oh, yeah. Warren, like he's, a, he's a great bad guy. Like you really kind of uh, for sure. enjoy him for, for how bad he is. Like there's no secrets. Like the audience knows everything in this movie. There's nothing that you're surprised about really, you know, Bronson knows the killer knows the partner knows yeah. the justice system knows. Knows, the the nursing department knows everybody knows this guy's a real <laughs> son of a bitch yeah. he's gonna come and kill a bunch of people and nobody can stop it until yeah. the very end you know it's pretty cool I'm talking to my client do you mind well i have something more for you to talk about we found some blood on your client's clothing we're gonna rebook a murder one what see you at the arraignment you dirty shit He's lying. There was no blood on my clothes, and he knows it. You dirty shit! He's lying! He's lying! He's lying! No! No! I think I was terrified by this movie when I was younger. Like, it really creeped me out. Really? I liked horror movies, and I didn't like horror. I had a weird relationship with horror movies when I was younger. Like, I think I saw this at a pretty young age. I was also, you've mentioned before, I like Chuck Norris too. And Chuck Norris has a very similar movie to this called Silent Rage. Like the, those two movies, they're kind of the same. And I think Silent Rage is canon too, but they both are these maniac, uh, emotionless killers. And I, you know, I liked his movies and I like these movies, but those two just stuck out. Like I didn't like watching them. They creeped me out. I thought they were really terrifying. 
And so now coming back to it, I wasn't nearly, I didn't find myself terrified by Warren Stacy like I might have when I was like, who knows how old we were when we first probably saw it when I was 14 or something like that. But do you think that has anything to do with how things have changed so much? And like, maybe we're desensitized to it compared to back then, like back then, the idea of a serial killer was actually pretty fresh. Like, I mean, there was, there was talk yeah. of it, but I didn't really have, grapple with the, with the sense of what that would mean personally until I was into my twenties, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I found myself as I watched this thinking about that a lot. And when I read the reviews and I read some of the reviews from the time and I can't really, I can't really figure it out. Like how much of it is how much times have changed and how much of it was the fact that I was young and how much of it is like kind of in the movie itself. I don't, I don't really, I don't really know. Maybe we'll figure that out as we talk about it. Yeah, I find this really interesting. It's one of the fun parts about this podcast is looking back at these movies that are older and trying to think about, you know, our perspective now compared to when we were kids watching them the first time. And I I can't help but think about the fact that, you know, back then I had a really strong radar for things. I was super in tuned. I could tell if something was cheap or if it was trying to put one over on me, I, I would pick that up. Nowadays, though, looking back at a movie like this, I have this sense of generosity to it like i also am just more refined and i can recognize the choices that they made were really smart and some of the style and everything else that was put into this film was was very creative and like now i look back it's just i really enjoy that but back then when you're watching a movie at that time like when the movie's brand new you can place it in a trajectory of films that come before it and maybe yeah. i thought at that time i saw that that film was you know maybe not pushing the envelope very much but was was more of a tribute or cashing in on a style yeah, that was and, and current in a lot in a lot of the reviews people are just disgusted by this movie like almost to a to a hilarious degree like people just revolted like the reviews make it sound like they went running down the aisle they had seen something they couldn't like they wanted to shower <laughs> like it's pretty campy like it doesn't show any actual knives going into people or anything no all those deaths are covered in a real sort of psycho kind of way you see the knife you see the scream you see the blood splatter but there's no like makeup shots of something you know insertion or anything like that no it's also no it's all suggested yeah and it's the circumstances i guess that are kind of terrifying it's it's more of it's more of a thriller than a horror movie though and it doesn't i don't know I suppose because so many people, so many people get slashed up in the film, it qualifies as a slasher, but you don't really see any of the slashing. It's the nature of Stacy too, though. Like he's barely removed from like a Michael Myers kind of character. Like he's just one step away. Like he does operate in the real world. He has his job repairing typewriters or whatever, but he's really just in like a total sociopath, blank face, dead eyed guy so he's he's almost like jason or something in that right he's pretty close it's pretty slashery yeah you're right he doesn't function with people at all well no he can he can he can (laughs) manipulate them or get the response he's hoping for to some degree like he can push people away really easily yeah you don't want him in your workplace no (laughs) or in the next seat over at the movies yeah, I probably wouldn't hire him to, you know, um, coach a girls soccer team or something like that. Uh, any prospective hirees? Like, what sorts of things would you put up on your tack board at work? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have some office policies here. We just want to make sure you're in line with them. 
I think if he pulled that thing at the photocopier nowadays, you know, like unzipping the woman's dress um, as a coworker, uh, I think that's probably just cause for, for getting fired. <laughs> I'm just going to guess, you know, uh, either way, man, I think it's time we switched gears here and yeah. uh, I'm excited to hear about Charles Bronson's entrance in this film. Can you uh, tell us a bit about that? Okay. Well, this is kind of a bit of a tricky one because in a way there's two entrances in this movie. Um, not exactly in the same way as Evil at Men do, but then there's some similarities as well. So you turn the movie on, the first thing you see is Bronson. It opens on him, and he's sitting kind of weary at his desk, which is a really unusual way to, to meet Bronson. Jerry, don't do that. What's new, Leo? Are you onto something? The captain issued a statement. Didn't you get it? Are we friends or not? I won't quote you directly. What? You won't quote me. You won't mention my name on the TV. And you call yourself my friend. It's not nice, Leo. Jerry, I'm not a nice person. I'm a mean, selfish son of a bitch. I know you want a story, but I want a killer, and what I want comes first. We get this amazing line from Bronson, and then it's just like, self, 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 it immediately cuts. So stylish, the way that his name flashes. Like, he delivers this line, and then his name is front and center, red on black, and then 10 to midnight. And in that way, it's very similar to Evil That Men Do. He throws the knife at the screen, yeah. and then Charles Bronson. And, and that was a Jaylee Thompson film, too. So the two openings of those movies two years in a row really kind of cashing in on this expectation of Bronson but then also cementing it too I think. Jaylee Thompson's direction in both movies is masterful and his use of Bronson in both movies is masterful like Bronson he's he's at his best in both of these films I'd say and I think that's as much to do with Jaylee Thompson's editing his uh, framing you know, the way that he uh, he gets the most out of Bronson's performance as it is Bronson himself. Yeah, absolutely. Like Bronson crafted the character that he portrayed again and again. And if you read interviews with him, he talks about how committed he is to providing his audience with what they want from him. And so some people might read that and think it's sort of like a kind of pandering. And certainly lots of the reviews accuse him of just sort of sleepwalking through but i don't see that at all i think no. like he's honed what it is to be bronson like just just perfectly and yeah, yeah. and jaylee thompson knows who that guy is and knows what movie to put him in and i agree just like they're both just nailing it like by the 80s bronson was really meticulous about the roles that he would pick you know he would really comb through scripts and was very careful about cultivating yeah you know, what you're saying there, like cultivating his audience and really satisfying his audience. There's that famous line I think we've talked about before where he describes himself as a bar of soap. Like he just sees a product at this point. And there's something sad about that. I wish that he had kind of stretched his legs more as an actor, even at that age. But, but there's also something really great because you get to see this amazing performance over and over again. Yeah. And you wonder, you know, where Bronson ends and the character begins. But this movie is a perfect vehicle for him at this specific age. Like the fact that he's so fatherly and old school 
you know, and he's a, he's a protector and at the end he's willing to kill if it's the morally correct choice. Like the qualities that he brings at this specific age to this character are really what the movie hangs on. Like if it weren't for Bronson's um, age and the fact that he can play someone of that, that substance and that level of wisdom and fatherliness uh, the movie wouldn't have made sense. It wouldn't have been as successful and it would have been, it wouldn't have been as poignant. Like the ending is kind of ham fisted in a way, but it's also really powerful. Like the way that Bronson sacrifices himself is, is, uh, is critical. Like if he doesn't do that uh, you kind of just think of it as like a crime and punishment movie, which, which I don't think it was. I think that there's an element of that from the Canon side, like they're messing with their audience, but I don't think that's what the point of the movie was from Bronson's perspective and likely not from Jay Lee Thompson's. Yeah, I agree. And also like this movie was written for him. Certainly. Like, I think it was, it took parts from an sort of an existing script, but you know, the kind of relatively famous story about this one is they had the name 10 to midnight. They thought it was a good title and they had Bronson. Uh, and then they, they started selling it to foreign investors and markets like before there wasn't the Canon group. Yeah. yeah, There wasn't even a movie. They mocked up this ad, which was like him with a machine gun and like a picture of the globe. And it looked vaguely like it was about terrorism and just because his name was going to bring in money. Um, but before we get too far away from the opening there, like I'd, I'd said, there was two um, entrances for Bronson in this movie. And, and there are, and I didn't realize this. The second time I watched this was I watched it with the Paul Talbot commentary on, which you get if you get the, the Shout Factory Blu-ray. And watching it with that commentary is so entertaining. Like we're always giving shout outs to Paul Talbot for his two amazing books. But he does a couple of commentaries it's worth it just just for this. And he dropped so many interesting details. And one was that wasn't meant to be the first scene of the movie. The movie was written for Bronson's entrance to be at the crime scene. The girl's killed in the woods. And then if you watch it with this in mind, it's so obviously true. The way the camera pans to the bushes and Bronson just emerges like from the bushes, super like it's a rock solid Bronson entrance. And that was supposed to be his entrance into the movie. But when they were going through like test screens and editing and stuff, the I guess the Canon guys said it takes too long to get to Bronson. Like we need Bronson earlier in the movie. I think it took like something like 12 minutes or something before Bronson appeared. And they're like, no. And so the scene that appears at the start of the movie is actually originally from much later from, from after one of the later killings, they just snatched it threw it at the start of the movie, just so Bronson would be on the screen earlier. So, but I think that second entrance brings us right back to the style. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. So as usual, my first question for you is, can you describe the facial hair situation? I think the facial hair and the head of hair combo in this movie is just it's just rock solid it's so good like there's uh, there's phases of Bronson's career and when I picture older Bronson this is it like great cop stash great head of hair he looks yeah so good what do you think yeah no I I think so too yeah he's got a bit of Paul Kersey in him in this role but he's got a lot more new wave he's he's way more kind of officious He's a public servant in this film. <laughs> yeah. My favorite of all is Bronson in the final scene. He's got a tweed sport coat, right? 
He's got no tie. He's got an open open collared black <laughs> shirt button up and he's wearing a v-neck sweater a super tight v-neck sweater see he looks incredible he looks so cool man we keep saying this but i am going out as soon as possible to buy that sweater oh yeah one thing that i loved was the like the three-tone uh suit shirt tie and bronson like i noticed it immediately when he walks out of those bushes he's wearing like a he's got like a purple shirt and he's got a different shade of purple tie. And then he has a lavender suit jacket over top of it. So he has three different levels of purple, which is just like, I don't, it would never occur to me to do that in real life until I saw this. And now, you know, try and stop me. There's a lot of great style in here. In fact, I, I want to do a quick shout out to Andrew Stevens, who wears like a really cool three-piece suit at one point. Uh, he has mid-width ties, nothing skinny, nothing fat. Um, also, uh, Jeffrey Lewis, uh, the the lawyer in this, he's got this light bluish gray three-piece suit at one point. That's so <laughs> cool. He looks fantastic. He looks ridiculous, but he looks great. And then a lot of what Warren wears is is pretty fun. So he's got like oh yeah, he's got that cool '80s leather jacket with a really tight collar, really short collar. He's got the members-only jacket. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's got a like a red Adidas tracksuit when he's getting interrogated. He's wearing this this uh, just the jacket part, and it looks super cool. And then he's got that kind of Michael Jackson red red uh, sport jacket that he cruises around with yeah. when he's going to see the movies. I also just a quick shout out to uh, the bodysuit undergarment that the one roommate is wearing after the funeral when she's getting changed in her apartment. It's like that that was a, oh, that yeah. was a great choice. Yeah, it was. Yeah, for sure. Um, they certainly like this movie doesn't shy away from the nudity and they should certainly could have gone that way. But to go for that bodysuit is way. Yeah, no, way. it's a bit more. uh leaves a bit more to the imagination but yeah i mean we should talk a bit about the nudity too because as as part of the the fashion of the film it really just like no holds barred goes into in for nudity no well they they bar some holds (laughs) yeah i guess that's true yeah (laughs) yeah well you know one thing that's really noteworthy here man is that poppy cannon reese did the a lot of the wardrobe consulting on this oh yeah we'll remember that name from the evil that men do and that was another film where you and i were both really struck by the quality of bronson's garments right his uh style was was masterful so Another shout out to Poppy Cannon Reese. Wow. Yeah. That's and pretty- again, that that would come out the very next year. We're talking about them in reverse order, but they had a bit of a team together that was on fire. Yeah. I was thinking like we were in about grade five when this movie comes out. And if and like when I think about what we like, pretty much everybody in grade five looked like Warren Stacy. <laughs> in 1983, <laughs> like that's the, ex- that's the exact hair that I had. When I yeah. when I was like nine years old or whatever, so I don't know. I just, yeah. When when we met when you were eighteen, you had that hair. Oh come on, man! Actually, no, you I might be did. right. <laughs> you did, man. It was a bit longer in the front. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> One other thing about style in this movie that I really loved is they're driving a K car which is pretty cool. <laughs> we had one of those when we were kids. Yeah, and I had a K car. It's like a four cylinder, you know, very yeah. slow car. It's pretty, I must've been souped up for them. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, what about the music? So I, I think the music, the synthesizer and the use of tension, it's just masterful. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Who is the composer, Ray? Yeah, it's good. The music is composed by a guy named Robert O. Ragland 
who this wouldn't be his last Bronson movie. He would come back and do the music for Messenger of Death. Like he's, he did a lot of movies, but none of them where you're like, oh, wow, he did that. Like probably the most well-known thing I saw on his list of other credits was uh, Q, the Winged Serpent. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> yeah, I do. So I think it's with Michael Moriarty where that, that dinosaur lives like on yeah. top of the Empire State Building or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, he does. Yeah, so that's a bit of a deep cut, but he does the music for that movie and like lots of genre stuff, lots of straight to video kind of level stuff. This is probably his biggest, most high profile movie, actually, I think. All right, Robert O'Raglan. Well, thanks for that, Big Ray. Uh, another thing I want to ask you about is the substance of this film. I don't know. I, this is a pretty complicated movie. There's a few layers to it. What are your thoughts on the substance of this film? The substance, according to Nick and Ray. This is a really kind of archetypal story and role for him. Like you mentioned a little early, he's like the protective father. And this is him absolutely embodying that role to sort of to perfection. I think like reading a lot of the reviews of this movie, tons of bad reviews. <laughs> we'll get to those in a bit, but lots of the bad reviews, people take issue with what they see as being the politics of the movie or like layering their own politics onto the movie. And I think you can do that pretty easily because it's such a simple story. So you can talk about the police or you can talk about the portrayal of, you know, vigilanteism or whatever, but, I love these movies because of Bronson and because of that sort of archetypal role that he plays. And I think to view him as a cop and like kind of get bogged down in sort of like, what's it saying about the justice system and stuff like that. I think that misses the fact that it's kind of a movie about him as a father. And I like to view it like he's a dad who also happens to be a cop. So when I'm looking at the decisions that he makes, the planting of the evidence, shooting Stacy in the face in the middle of the street. Like he does those things as a dad to me more than he does them as a cop. And, and very similar to evil that men do the movie doesn't give us like there. It, it paints you into that corner of moral certainty. Like you said, everybody knows every, there is no question of like, well, wait, justice will be served. Like we know Stacy murdered everybody. Everybody knows Stacy murdered everybody. And we also, the movie creates a world in which we know he will get off. The movie, I think, expertly corners you to be there on the street with Bronson. And then Bronson, I think, as a dad, is looking at a guy who sometime down the road is coming after his daughter. And so he delivers, the world's going to hear from me or whatever. It's like, no, we won't. Yeah, like Stacy is portrayed as this just this evil force, loose, and you need this wise, protective father in in a three tone suit to to like to to take care of it. And so I think, yeah, I think there's a bunch of movies around this time, the Death Wish movies, and this that are in a that are playing in the same sandbox. It'll be interesting to watch those. So maybe I'm thinking of all of them at once, but that's really how I felt watching this one. What do you think? Well, you bastard. I thought that, I, that's basically what I was going to say, honestly. Oh, wow. I just, yeah. Well, I then it must the be same. true. I think it is true. Well, <laughs> yeah. honestly, my, my points though were more that you're tempted sometimes to think about it as just a law and order movie by the end of it, but it's not. It's really about Bronson as an aging public servant 
right? Who's sort of becoming antiquated in his, his uh, approach. It's about, I think it's kind of about generations too. And Bronson's obviously the, the kind of father figure in this, but you know, uh, the relationship that he has to his family, his job, his old neighborhood, it leads him to take responsibility for, for some of the failings around him uh, by sacrificing himself. And he does it in front of his daughter and in front of his partner, who's also, you know, a young man. But yeah, I think Andrew Stevens' character is really interesting because he's portrayed as this shining new star who's coming up and is, is really uh, moral and, and uh, driven by his sense of justice and his duty. He take, take, took an oath and he's going to stick to that oath. And Bronson, you know, he, he kind of refers back to, yeah, you know, maybe I would have done that when I was his age too, you know? And, and I think that um, there's a real mirroring throughout the movie between Andrew Stevens' character and Warren Stacy's character and the, their relationship to Bronson and how one continuously disappoints and frustrates and, and, um, and, you know, goads Bronson and the other one pushes and challenges and, you know, tries to, tries to become Bronson. And I think it's really fascinating when you think about that, just the sort of dynamics be, between the generations in this film. And I love Bronson's daughter's character um that that actor lisa eilbacker who i don't really know much but she's in beverly hills cop she's in an officer and a gentleman um a few other notable movies but so those are big movies back then yeah yeah i know for sure and i recognized her right away i'm like i know this actor there's tons of great characters they all get interesting lines that are of their character like the writing gives people things to do that are interesting and they're really charismatic are you and uh, Lori's dad partners actually right now i'm more or less trying to measure up to his standards <laughs> nice, meeting. nice, nice meeting, you. meeting you i'll see you later Lori. bye the standards of what and what the hell kind of remark is that your father's a man who's been out there on the firing line for over 20 years god do you have any idea how many commendations he's received? He's an outstanding public servant. Nobody says he isn't. But when my mom needed him or I wanted him, where was he? Out on the firing line earning commendations. What is your problem? Your father's a cop. You've got to make allowances for that. What the hell do you think I've been doing for 20 years? places an ulcer you're right bronson's daughter is yeah she's so good and you know the last thing i'll say about this is that you know there is still a really intentional effort here uh somehow to to link you know the, the sense of vigilante justice or at least some sort of systemic uh repair that bronson's making by shooting warren in the head <laughs> You know, yeah. the system's clearly broken yeah. and in the minds of the people making this film, or at least it's, it's something that they're playing with in order to get people whipped up, which I'm certain it did. But one thing you said earlier, I think is really interesting that nobody mentions in all the reading I've done about this movie is the fact that Bronson sacrifices himself at the end. Like everyone's like everyone that's critical of his killing of Stacy seems to ignore the fact that he doesn't like Bronson's not going to get away with killing Stacy he's going to jail for the rest of his life. Like he, like you said, in front of his daughter, in front of his young partner, he's like, I'm going to do this, but I know that that means it's over for me. In all of the looking around for this movie, I never saw anybody really address that, which really is, you know, that's the moment at the end is him making that decision. I think a lot of people miss it. I think a lot of people see it as like, 
he's going to get off because he's a cop or something. But that's, there's no way that that's happening. There's like 30 squad cars rolling up. Yeah, if Andrew Stevens' character didn't let him get off for putting a bit of blood on Buddy's shirt there, he's probably not going to turn a blind eye to him shooting some guy in cold blood right in the head in the middle of the street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the original ending was, that was him and uh, and his partner and Stacy just in a back lane and he does right. it. And then so Stacy's like give put in that position, and Bronson apparently says, "Don't worry, I'll turn myself in." That was sort of the original. Well, ending. apparently there was also an ending written where Bronson wrestled Stacy to the ground, but then Bronson refused to do it because he didn't want to be <laughs> yeah. in the film wrestling a naked man. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I yeah, I read I that. I want to see the I want to see the sequel to this though, when when it's like a prison movie with Bronson and as this character <laughs> in prison fighting his way fighting his way through yeah, in prison with all the guys he's been put away yeah like there are so many bronson movies where i want desperately want a sequel like don't you want to see cheney roll up at the next town in hard times no or kidding man. yeah or like you want to see um what's his name on the other side of the mountain and uh like, uh death hunt like yeah like wherever he ends the mad yeah. trapper <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Like there's there's rarely a Bronson uh, film where I don't wish there was another one with that same character in it. Well, what's that actor's name you were telling me about? Who does the Bronson look alike? Yeah, that guy that does a straight to video uh, bronzy or something like that. Yeah, bronzy. Like hire that guy to play uh, Leo Kessler in uh, after he gets out of prison. Call it 10 after midnight or something. Yeah, you're getting two streams guaranteed out of us. Well, listen, let's talk a bit about the action because okay. there's, I think we've already touched on it and there, there wasn't a ton of action that's, um, there's not like explosions or anything like that. You know, he, he, his, the murder scenes, there's many of them. The, the greatest of which obviously is the dormitory scene at the end. Like it's the most dramatic. He goes through it and kills everybody. And it's I, my favorite scene, obviously, of that whole setup is when she, burns him in the face with the with the curling iron it's awesome but yeah there, in terms of action though there really isn't a ton of it i love the scene my favorite scene in the movie actually is just when they're in traffic and bronson pulls up beside him and there's that crazy tense moment yeah. but that's not really action you know yeah no not really action i also love the scenes i think like uh, there's a couple of moments where Gene Davis as Stacy brings like this incredible energy again, not really action, but some incredible energy to the scenes. Whenever he flips out, like he owns it. Like it's some couple of great pieces of acting. Yeah. He whips that chair when, you know, he gets framed and just these uh, frustrated screams when he's not getting his way or he knows he's getting uh one over yeah no for yeah. sure i mean the the big ending obviously when bronson like there's some criticism of the fact that you know bronson shows up at the dorm and then you know they've got a, like a good head start on him but he ends up finding oh, him somehow yeah I, great. I was gonna mention how yeah this i was gonna bring this up in the action like what what goes on they they bolt straight away from the dormitory just in whatever direction they're going as the crow flies just straight down a road Bronson goes after them. He even looks kind of tired, but then just completely inexplicably runs past them and to get in front of them. 
Could do you have an explanation for how this happens? It's possible that Bronson ran out the door and hung a left, and they had taken a right, but they had gone in a circle. Okay, I'm gonna go with that. That's my yeah. only explanation. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a weird cut, but before, like, I we're getting near the end, but like somehow we have not, apart from me slipping it into the 60 second rundown, have not even mentioned probably the most. I don't know what to call it. Incredible, alarming, um, outrageous uh, elements of the entire movie. Well, I, that's gonna that's coming up. That's coming up in a in a big way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had a special special I got plan. Special plan for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but before we go there, uh, just one last thing to say about the action is that you know this is really more of a thriller. It's not a slasher. It's not an action movie. It's a thriller. It's a race against time. Uh, everybody knows that the that Stacy's the bad guy. There's no real mystery there. It's just how's Bronson gonna gonna get him, you know? And I love it. I thought it was so well done. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the characters and the other actors, the the production team. Uh, there's a few notes that I made here, uh, starting with Wilford Brimley. Look at him. That's the fellow you saw on your shore. Yes, of course. What was he wearing? The red jacket and jeans, designer jeans. He looked very neat. It was repulsive. Do not ask me questions. Making charges. When did you see it? Outside before the movie, and then when he sat down by me, by us, and afterward on the way out. I saw this guy before, during, and after the movie. You sure about that? Yes. Yeah. I'm positive. Right. Did you ever take her out, Warren? I drove her to work a few times. That's all. That's all. That's so Wilford Brimley, of course, is with Bronson in Borderline and Active Vengeance. He he was a former Howard Hughes bodyguard back in his youth, and I knew him mostly from The Thing, which is one of my favorite kind of scary movies, and Cocoon. As a kid, I remember seeing that, thinking it was kind of weird. And, and uh, but get this, this blows my mind. Wilford Brimley, I think I think I know what you're about to say. Was 48 years old when this movie was made. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And Bronson was 62, right? Yeah. And he looks the same age as Bronson. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, some other characters of note in this. Uh, Paul McCallum, the lab tech, is actually a Bronson's stepson and, uh, and Jill Ireland's uh, child. Right. So Paul McCallum, who was awesome, actually. I love that. Yeah, character. he does a great job in that scene. Kelly Preston's in the movie is one of the nurses who gets killed. She was uh, she's obviously, you know, John Travolta's wife who died recently, unfortunately. But uh, this is one of her first films. Ola Ray is uh, the woman who gets uh, killed in the shower. And she was the star of the thriller video with Michael Jackson. What year was thriller? Do you remember? Like how close to it was like it was just after this, I think. Yeah, it's like 84. Yeah, Gianna Kioff, who plays Karen. Yes. She's someone you might recognize from a bunch of ZZ Top videos. So she was in like Legs. She was in uh, Sharp Dressed Man, a bunch of other ones. And, and as soon as I found that out, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's Karen from this film. Jeffrey Lewis, of course, is, is uh, you know, he's been in a few Bronson films, but that's Juliet Lewis's father. He's the lawyer in the film. Yeah. I remember earlier in the, in the season talking about Lee Purcell and doing her doing those NRA videos. She did a couple of them with Jeffrey Lewis. So he's also very uh, kind of pro-gun, pro-NRA guy and, uh, and did some, did some uh, propaganda movies for them. Uh, you know, pro-wig as well. Very pro-wig. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah probably more dangerous than anything is that wig if that's his real hair no it's not i, I want to know what kind of shampoo that yeah <laughs> it sits so high on his head yeah so you know i always love to delve pretty deep into the lesser known characters in each movie and uh, i've already talked about the lab tech but the front desk cop is a guy named bo billingsley and bo billingsley isn't a super well-known actor, but he's in hundreds of films. He's got 287 acting credits, right? He's in like uh, Halloween H2O. He's in The Blob. You know, he's in a few other kind of um, noteworthy films, but he's in loads of video game movies and video games, right. loads of them, and lots and lots of anime and stuff like that. So the guy's the guy's just grinding it out as a working actor. Yeah, Bo Billingsley. So he's the front, yeah, he's right the front desk sergeant there in this film. And the last kind of noteworthy thing I have to say about the actors is apparently Alec Baldwin actually screen tested for the Warren Stacy role. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it would have been pretty different, I think. Last uh, production note is Poncho Conner, who uh, uh, it was the son of Bronson's longtime agent, was the producer on this. So he produced a number of films with Bronson. I think about about ten movies, including some of our favorites, which is The Evil the Men Do, The White Buffalo, and of course Messenger of Death. So St. Ives too, which I know is one of your favorites. Yes. So Big Ray, uh, curiosity here, man. I don't think there's a book for this for this film. Was there? What, what's going on there? Let's dive into Bronson's book corner. You're about to be backed into Bronson's book corner. There's no book uh, for this film, as was the way with most uh, canon films. There's no. There's no novelizations that they did. So while there were a lot of novelizations coming out at the time, Canon, I get maybe they didn't spend the money on it. There's, I looked around, there's a couple, like the, a couple of those Chuck Norris movies get books, like Invasion USA and Delta Force. You can go pick up the paperback, but none of Bronson's books. Maybe they thought Chuck Norris fans were more cerebral or something <laughs> i don't know but uh the 80s are sort of like the weakest decade for books and bronson so i was looking at like in the 70s he makes like 23 movies and 17 of them have a book associated with them but in the 80s he makes 13 movies and there's really only three of them that have books and then a couple of like sort of like death hunt so, so there is no book you can go buy of 10 to midnight, but I still trying to bring value added to the listener, Nick. So I was watching the movie. And one thing I noticed is that McCann at one point in the movie is reading a book. He's laying on his bed, uh, reading a paperback. And I think he's on the phone with uh, Lori. And so I was like, what book is McCann reading? <laughs> Let that be an interesting thing to find out. And I'm listening to the commentary with Paul Talbot and he mentions it and he says, he's reading a book, but, but I can't tell what book it is. And so I took that as a challenge to try to, to get a detail that, that Paul Talbot uh, couldn't figure out. And so, so armed with my uh, high definition and uh, my reading glasses, I was able to figure out that McCann is reading a book called The Croesus Conspiracy by the one and only Ben Stein. Remember Ben Stein? No. The guy who's like anybody, anybody from Ferris Bueller. He writes all sorts of like political books and stuff, but he wrote some thrillers, I guess, in the early day. And one of them is The Croesus Conspiracy, which is like a, uh, I don't know, Robert Ludlamy kind of thriller novel about 
Nazis trying to bring back the Third Reich or something like that. So, so anyways, if you want to be a real Bronson completist, um, reading even the tangential books here, you can get the Croesus Conspiracy by Ben Stein. Wow, Ray, you really, you really stepped up that time, man. I'm very impressed. Uh, it just goes to show what you can do if you got some strong prescription glasses and a huge television and maybe uh, taking a night off the, off the hard liquor. <laughs> anyway, man, we're going to go uh, dip into the review roundup, and uh, I'm hoping you might do the honors on this one for us. What do you got for us, Big Ray? Well, I tried to look in some new places and I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a shout out to something called the films of Charles Bronson blog that, which as far as I can tell from the copyright seems to have maybe gone dark around 2008. So at one point somebody ran a blog uh, called the films of Charles Bronson blog and on it is just old reviews of the movies, like from newspapers of the time. So under 10 to midnight, from the Detroit Free Press, March 15th, 1983, by uh, Catherine Rambeau. The Review Roundup. 10 to Midnight lets everybody off the hook in the name of somebody's kangaroo court idea of justice. Um, Kessler's a cop who doesn't belong in the force, even though we might like to have him for a neighbor. Uh, watching this film is like watching a bullfight. It may be fascinating. You may be swept up in its passion, but afterward you feel diminished and dirty. And the audience's cheers at the end represent a public approval of corruption that I find unbearably sad. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And if you read the whole thing, she actually goes back and forth. She sort of reluctantly admits that she did have a really good time with this movie, but then also struggles with its politics. So it kind of pulls her in a couple different directions. And then I've got I've got another one here that's a little more positive. I'll cut down to the bottom of this one, too. And I you know what? I cut off on my cutting and pasting here. I don't know. I forget where it's from. But uh, this this person says, despite being a Golden Globus picture, a duo made famous for their over-the-top exploitative films, Ten to Midnight has a procedural streak and adherence to crime scene statistics that helps it stand out among similar movies. The cat and mouse game between Warren and the cops escalates tensely with the former always one step ahead until Bronson steps in and changes the game. Bronson's output experienced a slight dip in quality as the 80s went on, marking this one as his last solid feature in a legendary career. I think the person obviously didn't watch uh, Evil That Men Do that came shortly after this one. The very next year. Also an exceptional Bronson vehicle. So, yeah. Yeah, In many of the same ways. But you know what I love about that review is that it was well-written. Both those reviews are well-written. I love, too, that there's a blog that exists from 2008 that hasn't been updated in 13 years, but someone's paying to keep that up on a server somewhere, which is awesome. We live in a good (laughs) world. Just uh, just direct deposit on whatever... uh... (laughs) <laughs> they just haven't checked their uh, visa statement. They don't know that they're getting charged six bucks a month <laughs> to keep those old Bronson reviews up. Well, we live in we live in a good world where where people are investing in this sort of journalism and giving it away for free. Absolutely. So, so one of the things that's a lot of fun for us and uh, doing this podcast is is obviously rating the movies. And uh, I like to try to pick out some sort of a rating system for every episode. Uh, that corresponds with something in the film that was kind of unique. So maybe it was a prop or something, some word that the characters kept saying over and over again. And in this case, I think the obvious choice has to be the uh, the strange machine that uh, 
that Warren um, is using uh, for his for his own enjoyments at in his in the privacy of his home. So the last thing that I'm just gonna steal from the from the commentary from Paul Talbot is that this thing has a name. Yeah, this was apparently it was a purpose built um, prop, but it was modeled on a real thing. It was modeled on an actual device that is used to collect semen from like bulls oh. or like, I guess you're, if you're, you're doing a, like an animal husbandry right. or whatever, <laughs> like a stud. And it's like, to me, when, whenever I first saw it, it appeared to be sort of like, you know, like one of those electric knives that your uncle would cut the turkey with. You know, those things yeah. is this massive handle with <laughs> this large, um, <laughs> Yeah, and it's oh my gosh, it's dirty. Yeah, whoever was dressing the set probably had some fun with it. But this thing was called. It had two potential names. It's either called the Accu Jack, or the Vacu Jack. <laughs> that was the, the actual name of the device. When's the last time you made it with a girl, Warren? That's not last your... week, last month, last year. I refuse to answer. Never. You never made it with a girl because girls won't have anything to do with you, but you get back at them, don't you? Betty and Karen and God knows how many more. I won't listen to your filth. I won't listen to this, Warren. Warren. Warren, do you recognize this? Leo, What's that, Warren? You ever see one of these before? What's it used for? What's the matter? Cat got your tongue? It's for jacking off, isn't it? And these pictures, you recognize the girls on the pictures, Warren? Look at them. Look at them, Warren! Look at them, Warren! Look at them! Stop! Hey, hold it! I like vacuum jacks. Vacu jacks so how many, better. How many vacuum jacks out of 10 oh. are you giving 10 to midnight? Warren, I didn't even think about this um, leading up to this. I, didn't, I don't have a number in my head. You go first. Well, you know what? I'm going to give it... I'm going to give it a 7.5. Vacu jacks. <laughs> Vacu jacks, sorry, vacu jacks out of ten. I yeah. Uh, Wait a minute. Wait. You know what? I'm gonna give it an eight. I'm gonna give okay. it an eight vacu jacks out of ten because I'm gonna match you. I'm also gonna give an eight. And I'll tell you why. Why? I'll tell you why though. Because there's so many elements that are satisfying and amazing in this movie. There's so many things. It's eye candy. It's yeah. thrilling. It's funny. It's well acted. You know, there's just so much in this movie to love. Like. It's yeah. a trashy kind of movie in some ways. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of TNA in the film, sure. whatever. But I mean, it's fantasy. It's fun to watch. It's like you put it on and the time goes blowing by and you've enjoyed every minute of it. Great fashion, great music, like some, yeah, some hilarious uh, lines. Yeah, all the elements are there. I don't know why you would give it a low mark. No, I don't. I don't know what you take marks off for. I'm going to give it an eight as well. Like, I don't know why you'd, knock any vacuum jacks off your eight that's what i'm saying <laughs> just to, i've mentioned this to you before but we need to get this on the record and i want to know what you think about this the presence of the vacuum jack is kind of like why does bronson see it as proof of guilt this is what i don't understand like he sees he sees this thing in warren stacy's bathroom and he like he confronts him with it. It's like, do you know what this is for, Warren? And this is perhaps <laughs> the central line of the film. It's it for is. jacking off. And he says it as though, well, like now I've caught you. 
yeah. you 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 jack off so clearly you're a murderer like i don't <laughs> like it doesn't i like connect the dots for me nick well i think it's again it's that paternal it's the paternal undercurrent of the film like it's bronson being a father figure in the film and that's exactly the kind of reaction you might have expected from someone's dad barging into your room and finding the finding the vacuum jack right oh, and i think that's that's great yeah yeah you get a vacuum jack in your bathroom what the hell are you doing you know your life is just a, it's going to waste you yeah. loser get out get out of your bathroom quit jacking off yeah earn some get money. a job respect yourself <laughs> yeah make make some choices get your life together yeah Oh, that's opened up a whole new layer to the movie. But yeah, no, I think that's I think that's it. Yeah. And I think that too that uh, in Bronson's mind, um, it just it's there's a sense of I mean it's pretty antiquated. Obviously, it's a very different kind of mentality, and that's sort of the charm of the film too. Is that Bronson? I, I really draw this back to the fact that like he's an aging police officer. He's typing with hunt and, hunt and peck typing finger finger like yeah. two finger typing. Hey, you know, I like type that way. Email oh, me too. Yeah, yeah. But we're not. Uh, we're like Wilford Brimley's yeah, age now. <laughs> <laughs> his actual age, not yeah. his implied yeah. age. <laughs> not his age now. Yeah, but like you know, there's that sense that Bronson's his time is is passing, right? Yeah. Admissible, Leo. Right. When the law protects those maggots out there, you'd think they're an endangered species. Come on. Will you give me a break? Let's not get into that. The facts are we got no evidence and we can't hold this kid. He's got an ironclad alibi. And I think that that's another element to that that scene with the the vacuum jack is that uh, <laughs> his judgment is is one from a previous generation where maybe that wasn't left sitting around the house. The, the vacuum jack no. might have existed, but you sure as hell didn't talk about it. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. So 16 total. Yeah. This was a, this was a, this was a, a fun movie to watch. Yeah. For sure. I really enjoyed it. And it, that brings me to what's next, man. Yeah. Right on. You know, when we were, uh, when we were kids, we first met each other, but I remember renting this movie. I'm pretty sure it was you and me and we're going to watch St. Ives. And I know that's one oh, of your all time favorites. This is it. This is the real deal. Oh, I'm excited. But until then, everybody, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Ray. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you both this one today. Thanks, Nick, as always. And uh, everybody, uh, this is Hard Times on Film. My name is Nick. Hard Times on Film. My name's Ray. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Check out us, check us out on Instagram. Wherever you get your podcasts, go check us out. Uh, tell your mom. <laughs> tell your mom about this. Tell your dad about the uh, Vacky Jack. <laughs> Where uh, <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Bringing family closer together. Yeah. This is Hard Times on Film, everybody. All right. Hard Times on Film.